Hello, and welcome to the Electric Punch-JCC podcast. I am your host, Logan Grigsby, and t- today I have the pleasure of speaking with Danny Alexander. Hello, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, you are a member of the Johnson County Community College faculty, as well as a mu- music journalist, correct? Right. Right. Awesome. Well, first off, I'd like to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come on tonight. I know uh, it sounds like you have a lot to balance. You have kind of like two jobs back and forth. Yeah, it, it has been that, yes. yes. I, th- I like to think they work together, you know, that I, I, I write so I can teach writing. Okay. So I'd like to start these off with a bit of an icebreaker. So if aliens landed on Earth, who would you want to send as a representative to represent all of humanity? To go talk to the aliens? Yes, to be, to be our ambassador. I think, I think, well, you know, Taylor Swift comes to mind. <laughs> Do some sort of song she and dance for She's very good at, like, you know, connecting with people. Absolutely. Um, I think it's in her and Kanye. <laughs> that might be a battle. <laughs> okay, so let's get started with a little bit of background information. Where are you from originally? Are you kind of Kansas City native? Or no, you really uh, Bartlesville, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. which is just north of Tulsa. I don't know if, you, if you've anyone seen the movie Killers of the Flower Moon. It's kind of set right there where I, where I grew up. Very excited to see that movie. I'm hopefully going to get to hopefully going to get to see it this weekend. Yeah. Okay, so where did you attend, uh, attend university, and what did you study in? Oklahoma State University. Mm-hmm. Um, I was undeclared for a couple of years. I ranged from wanting to be a biology major to geology to, to all kinds of different things, but I, but I always wrote. Mm-hmm. I, just, I don't think I thought English teachers would have me, and so I didn't really, until I had an English teacher give me a really supportive note on a paper, I didn't, she said, I did. She wrote, I hope you're an English major. I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> All my electives went into English, so it was like, because I had studied a little bit of everything. And that's one great thing about a liberal arts or English degrees. Everything applies. Absolutely. So, you know. I have learned that very recently, about five <laughs> semesters in, that I should focus on my liberal arts. Okay, so what, so what was that kind of inspiration? Was it that English teacher giving you that first note, or was there any other thing that kind of insp- inspired you to... Hit, hit music especially? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's interesting. Uh, I had always written, and I was really enamored with... Uh, I loved uh, horror stories. I was a huge Stephen King fan by the time... Like, when he kind of came on the scene, I was like 12 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I liked to write sort of fictional things... But when I was getting 13, 14 years old, there was, a, there was a huge movement. I mean, it had been around since the late 60s, and this is like the late 70s. Um, there was a big movement around the rock presses. Mm-hmm. And so I identified with the writers that were sort of writing about the music I cared about that was changing Absolutely. my life. And um, so uh, Dave Marsh, who's going to come up later, I think, was mm-hmm. one of the ones that really connected with me. Another one was named Grill Marcus. Um, and I just thought, I, I, I'd like to do what they do. You know? Absolutely. And so that, that was always in the back of my mind. I didn't... Uh, uh, well, I wanted to be a musician for a while, too. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's... a bunch of bad songs in a notebook somewhere and probably <laughs> on some cassettes. I think that's one one third of kids' yeah. dreams is either be president, uh, be a rock star, um, be a be a doctor, dash lawyer. Yeah, yeah, probably, <laughs> probably. It, and it was always the writing thing. I mean, I I was writing songs more than I could play an instrument. You know, I could play a little bit. Absolutely. 
So, are you an animal person? Do you have a cat or yeah, a, dog a dog or a dog? I have a dog. I like all animals, but I was uh, terribly allergic to uh, cats. Still yeah. am, and so just never had it. I had one when I was really young before they knew that. Mm -hmm. so. I have a cat that, yeah, every time I pet him, he eyes start watering, and I itch the eyes, and then they work oh, yeah. the worse, but he loves laying on my face and rubbing up on my <laughs> so face. You just, you just power through. Yeah, right? it's, like he know, it's like he knows. He's, he's a little bit of a jerk. <laughs> yeah, my eyes, uh, I can, you know, when I walk in a place, I can tell. You know, there's cats there. <laughs> but but it, for the most part, you know, they're fine if I don't mess with them, you know. Absolutely. What's, what's your dog's name? Deacon. Deacon? He was my dad's dog. He was a stray. Mm -hmm. the, uh, I mean, well, it wasn't a stray. I was dumped at my dad's church, and I think that's where he got the name, really. I remember him going through some names. and I like, I like uh, that name. But it's he had, one. yeah, my dad had him for like the last three or four years of his life. So. so, can you tell me how you ended up working at Johnson County Community College? Kind of what brought you here? Uh, I was married, and uh, my wife at the time got a job in the KC mm -hmm. area, and I'd always wanted to move up here. It's kind of a natural... Um, if you're into music and and just sort of cultural things, there's there's a lot going on up here, and uh, so people tend to either move from the Tulsa area where I'm from, mm -hmm. although there's a lot more sort of keeping people there now, but we tended to move either to Kansas City or Dallas. Dallas, that makes sense. And I wasn't... Kansas City always had a charm to me. I, was, I had a cousin up here mm -hmm. and uh, aunt and uncle, and spent some time in the summers here, so I was really happy when she got that job, and we, we, you know, we I think we always pictured ourselves moving up here. Absolutely. So, so, but almost right off the bat, I, I, this, I got a job part-time here, and part-time at Casey KCCC, Kansas City, Kansas Going, Community going College. back and forth between the two. Yeah, different days of the week, and, um, and I also started writing for the pitch. That's all, all like, spring of 88. Just okay. immediately, like in, in just kind of worked out like that. That's awesome. I was doing those things, yeah, yeah. And so it always feels good when it kind of just lines up like that. Kind of feels like destiny mm -hmm. in a way. Okay, so what is your official title with Johnson County Community College? Professor. Professor. English. Professor of English. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. So, can you describe what an average day looks like for you? Yeah, uh, you know, when you're an English teacher, you spend a lot of time grading papers. So if I'm not grading papers when I get up in the morning, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I mean, I like to, you know, kind of see what's, I check my email real quick to see if, see if students are, you know, writing me that they need anything and what other, you know, committee work or whatever I might be needing to do. But, you know, it fills up a lot with prep, you prep for class, you go teach class, and then you decide where you're going to grade. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's a, and, and, you know, it, like a day like today, there's a, uh, you know, a, things like this that come up that are they're fun, different <laughs> kinds of things. Lighthearted, hopefully you don't have to grade this or yeah, anything yeah. like that. Right, right, right. So, yeah. so what uh, skills or strengths do you think you need to be successful in your position? Well, I think teachers need to be um, just... You need to, first of all, I think you need to like people Absolutely. on some level. And, and, and you have to want to help people do what they want to do. Mm -hmm. And it helps to be a good listener, to be empathetic. Um, I, I know I, the big mistakes I ever fall into, the, the worst thing a teacher can kind of do is get defensive or um, um, 
you know, feel like they're trying to prove themselves to their students or something. And when you when you start doing that, you start spiraling. Absolutely. And um, but if you're open, um, if you're open to the students and what they're trying to tell you and what they need, then then you know, really, that's a lot of the job right there. Absolutely. You know? that's, a, that's that's the big thing. Um, it's, it can be tough, you know. You have a like I have a hundred and twenty students this semester, which is fairly typical around here. Mm -hmm. um, a little high for an English teacher, but I've got some extra responsibilities this semester. Honor semester, gang. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, um, I, you know, it's it's hard. It, one of the things that's hard is you have to live with a lot of. Uh, I think you have to live with a lot of. Um, I want to say failure, but that's, that's a bit of a strong word, but a lot of a sense of, like, I'm not going to be able to do everything I want to do, but, I, I, you know, you have to live with a, a certain sort of imperfection. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So on the flip side of that, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges of your career? And this could be as a music professor. I mean, this could be as a music uh, journalist. This could be as an English professor, or this could be a bit of both. Yeah, there've been a, a number of things over the year and years, and, and part sometimes part of it's trying to reconcile the two worlds. Uh, you know, I created a class along with another music journalist a few years ago mm -hmm. called the Literature of American Popular Music, which I wasn't even sure I wanted to do. I wasn't sure I wanted those two worlds to meet. But absolutely, you know, like I don't want to kill the fun of music by bringing it into the classroom. Absolutely, someone... I can understand. <laughs> I can understand that completely. <laughs> but. Uh, but I'm glad, I'm really thankful this friend of mine sort of pushed me to do it. Um, um, and uh, I worked in the diversity office several years ago, and it is an old diversity office, and that's um, something that's uh, no longer in existence, but it was such a good experience getting to know, you know, all sorts of different populations around campus, uh, mm -hmm. disabilities, uh, people working around disability issues, um, and even separate but connected to that, things like that. We had a, it, particularly back then, this is like 13 years ago, we had a pretty strong deaf community on campus. Mm -hmm. um, we had a conference that was ho uh, in part hosted by um, autism self-advocates. Mm, that's awesome. And, um, and so getting to work with all these different populations on campus um, was great. Um, it was tough for me because it was much more of an administrative job, which is hugely demanding in different ways than teaching is, <laughs> and and doesn't have the kind of immediate rewards. Um, the but we had some wonderful things we did, and and really great sorts of events came together with students around music and stuff. So sometimes I felt like, oh, the worlds are meeting. You know, absolutely. Um, and we actually created the class during that time because <laughs> music is. A diversity issue mm -hmm. right there um, and so we were able to make a diversity class out of it um, but uh, you know there probably nothing beats the COVID period absolutely as I a challenge I can understand that completely I felt like um, having to go online having yeah. to completely rework how you've been doing your class your pretty much your entire life at that point well I realized I'm a I think of myself as a pretty introverted person but, mm -hmm. I, but I realized that if I don't have faces mm -hmm. and like some human interaction with people, I find it very hard to get 
energy. I can I can understand the, that from completely. the class. Yeah, yeah. Don't so really know how to talk. I feel like you get so much communication from body language alone. Just yeah. completely cutting that out has has got to be difficult. Yeah, and you spent a lot of time. I felt, and I think this was common among teachers, a lot of time sort of um, kind of wasting energy in a way, but mm -hmm. trying so hard to make it Fun good despite the fact that, yeah, it was just, you know, it was, it was kind of futile. Mm -hmm. And as, as a student, that can be kind of difficult, <laughs> difficult too, because even if I do like something and I do feel like it's fun, I feel like it might come off as disingenuous as a way to kind of voice that because I don't want to be coming off as like a teacher's pet or something like no, that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, yeah. That, actually these dynamics be, are mm, difficult, yeah. Actually being able to smile and show you that I'm having a good time is way easier than sending an email, hey, I like this for this reason or that reason. And Yeah, well, there's a challenge. I mean, it gets kind of existential, but mm -hmm. I, I think uh, the fact that teachers are seen as authority figures... Mm -hmm. Um, and I understand that's the role we play, we're gatekeepers, we give grades, all those sorts of things, but I don't think that's really conducive to learning. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And if you think about people who really teach you things and people who really mentor you, when those relationships really take off, you're sort of, you're dealing with each other's equals. Absolutely. I, and, I would agree. Yeah. And that's, that's hard to do in the classroom. It is so hard because people have, are so programmed to see you a certain way and, mm -hmm. you know. Okay. I mean, you do have to manage the room, but that's not that hard if the students are working with you. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like that's a little bit easier in a college setting when people are actually paying to be there than in, like, a high school. I couldn't school. do high school. I know that. <laughs> I, that. I couldn't I do anything before college. I, I know yeah, that. I don't think you could pay me to go into middle school <laughs> classroom. I'd be crying. I admire them. I just have no days. idea how they do it. Yeah, yeah that's um, a whole other thing. Okay. Yeah. So my next question. Say I could pick up the phone and I could call... 20-something-year-old you, 23, 24, 25-year-old you, what is some advice that you would want to give 20-something-year-old you? Either, should, I, should you focus on this career? What, 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 do you, what do you think that you should do to make yourself happy? What are, yeah, what is some of the best advice that you would give your, a younger version of yourself? I would, I would, I would want my, I would want that younger version of me to slow down um, because I was that. sort of manic about, I was so ambitious about writing and various things. And I felt, I think I felt if I wasn't constantly, I mean, one of the things about when you write is like the minute it's published, then you feel like you're, it's, 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 especially back then, but I think it's still true. You don't get a lot of direct feedback. So mm -hmm. you feel like, oh, well, I have to prove myself again. And so I was constantly chasing deadlines. I was constantly trying to prove myself and, and cover ground, not being terribly strategic about it, mm -hmm. just, just, just being married to deadlines. And I, and, I, and I was also very ambitious about beyond school, just uh, I was involved in a lot of social activism, and, and none of those things were, they were all good, they all contributed to me getting the perspective I got, but, but I, was, uh, I was running around doing a lot of things um, less well than I could have or should have mm -hmm. um, because I was just spread too thin and um, I've spent a lot of you know the last couple of decades trying to figure out ways to slow down which is hard um, it never is really easy to cut things but yeah I, I, I would have liked to have learned to be a little more strategic and a little more um, um, uh, 
thoughtful and reflective and taking care of myself better at a young age. Absolutely. I, I can agree with that completely. I definitely, I'm 27 now and I just got into college a year ago. I definitely feel like I wasted some time ra racing things, trying to force things, being kind of manic myself. So mm -hmm. I'm glad. That's probably some advice I'd give myself at 21. Hey, slow down. You don't need to be in a rush to do these things. Chill out and just, just take some time to breathe. And you learn a lot of bad habits in school Absolutely. a lot of times. You know, like you learn how to do something in the 11th hour or whatever. And it's hard <laughs> to lose that because, because you think, you think that, well, that's how I think best. That's how I operate best is like on the fly. And, yeah. You know what I mean? I definitely am. The, <laughs> the last 30 minutes, 10 minutes uh, with my other podcast, it's a very big thing. I'll be sitting there working on my script. I won't start till three hours before, and then 10 minutes will be going. I'll be freaking out. Why didn't I start working on this two days ago? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> okay, so what do you consider to be the most rewarding part of your job? The teaching? Uh, both. If you want, yeah, answer a little bit about. Well, there, there's a, well, there is a connecting point mm -hmm. because I, I really enjoy, I do enjoy people, and I know some people don't quite. I've had people like argue with me. Oh, you don't like people. <laughs> you can't like people. People are terrible or something. And I honestly don't feel that way. And and so, um, you know, if I get to work with somebody on a story about some piece of art they made, some music they made. Mm -hmm. um, if I get to talk with, you know, fans or groups organizing around something, or I get to help students figure out how to write about what they want to write about here in school, or just or just even realize they have a lot more capability than they know, you know, that's all, like, really rewarding. So, Absolutely, yeah. kind of making, helping somebody realize their potential. Yeah, it's like I feel, I feel like I'm contributing something useful, so. You know. Absolutely, and 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 I get it. Like I said, I get energized by people. Absolutely, I'm not. I think people would say that's an extrovert, but I don't think I'm an extrovert. But I do gain energy. It's you know, there's a balance. Mm -hmm. um, I have to get away a lot, and I spend a lot of time, most of my time alone. Mm -hmm. But um, but just to get through the day, I need some people. Too, you know? I, I that... understand that completely. I consider <laughs> yeah. myself a bit of an introverted extrovert. I yeah. definitely need like some, some connection, but then sometimes once I do get burned out, I'm in my room for a bit. Um, yeah, that's a tough thing. It's funny. It's a tough thing for a mm -hmm. teacher to convey, but I really, I really love my students, and that sounds corny, but I look out and I see all these beautiful people, and I think... There's this wall that's just sort of there systematically between the teacher and the students, but it's it's it, I'm, I'm so I feel so like really honored that I get to work with them, you know. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So on the flip side of the rewarding part of your job, what do you think is the most stressful, make you want to pull your hair out part of the job? Yeah, well, it's it, it has a lot to do with. All those sorts of gatekeeping responsibilities and, mm -hmm. and, the, and the sense of, you know, watching people flail, watching people not succeed, and 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 trying to throw them life rafts and things and and, and finding it's not working for some reason. Absolutely. And um, um, you know, and of course that's they they've got their own life, so they're you know maybe some. They, I, I'm only seeing a sliver of it, so I don't know. You know, maybe this is not 
important compared to other things. Absolutely, I do, I'm a big yeah. believer in not everybody can be talented in everything. Oh yeah, yeah. It's just sometimes you see people. Well, you see people. I th- and I think it has a lot to do with depression or a lack of confidence. But you mm-hmm. see people sort of sabotaging themselves. Absolutely. And again, yeah, that may be fine if if they're just doing it here. But, but sometimes. It, Sometimes you feel a little helpless, like I wish I knew how to how to assist help you, somebody. what to yeah. what to say. I can understand that college, especially you got people nineteen, especially community college nineteen to thirty, you know, sometimes older than that, all walks of life and it can be very confusing. Some a lot of people are just trying to find themselves. They're finally getting that freedom of adulthood, so they really don't know who they are because they've been so molded by like parents' expectations, school expectations. So they might lash out and self self sabotage sabotage. I know I did that at some point, so I understand that completely. And a sense that options are narrow. Um, mm-hmm. The economy is contracting. You know? yeah. I mean, one thing any teacher probably has dealt with, and and anyone who writes about music deals with, is and I don't mean to get grim, but but um, you lose people because they take their lives. Absolutely. And that's just becomes a part of your. I, th- I think every teacher's experienced that, and mm-hmm. and everyone I know who deals with music has 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 experienced that, and it's just so you. And it, you know, some of the people I felt closest to, I couldn't reach when they needed it. You know, so that yeah. sort of thing. And my students write about it all the time, so I know it's prevalent. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I have personally lost some friends and family yeah. due to mental health issue, a combination of that and drug abuse. So that yeah. that does connect with me personally very deeply. It is. It's tough. And I hope you don't mind me bringing it up, but it's tough, but it's also so inextricably tied to, like, the other side of the coin. Mm -hmm. Having a sense of purpose, having a sense that you can do something to change your situation. You know, those kinds of things. Absolutely. And the fact that you're not always able to, you're not always able to help Mm -hmm. is really hard, a hard reality to live with. I'm talking about realizing you have to live with failure. That's part mm-hmm. of it, yeah. I like that, what you said about a sense of purpose, because I, I struggled with that for a long time in my early 20s of not having a purpose and kind of being aimless. It's only the last couple of years when I started my first podcast that I kind of gained that sense of purpose and I got back into college and I started doing that things and that kind of did make my depression go away because I finally was setting goals for myself and finally was so proud of myself but you can't just give somebody purpose that's kind of something they have to find from within themselves 20s are tough yeah Yeah. absolutely so let's get on to something a little bit more (laughs) (laughs) lighthearted So if you did not go into the current field that you currently work in, I know you said in college you looked at a whole bunch of things, geologist, uh, stuff like that. What what field do you think you would be in if you didn't end up in English or writing? It's hard for me to think outside of writing because that was just always there. <laughs> it, and and um, um, But I suppose, you know, I was, I was interested in anthropology. I'm interested in people. Absolutely. Sociology to extent, geography, you know, the humanities. So, um, studying cultures, um, I've spent a lot of time, as, as I said, as an activist, so some kind of organizing might have been something I would have done, okay. you know, like as a, you know, there are jobs, and, uh, 
um, I might have gotten sucked into something that, you know, I mean, I may have found a way to make that work where I was making a living or at least able to cobble something together. Um, uh, but, you know, it, it, you know, there, and music was just, music was always so inextricably tied up in that. Well, mm -hmm. and plus, when I was a kid, I made movies. Mm -hmm. um, Super 8 movies, which I don't know oh, if people know what that means anymore. I've but. seen the movie <laughs> Super 8, so I know it's a special type of camera, yeah, an old-fashioned type of camera. Yeah, yeah, it was what we had, you know. The, it was kind of the, the best film cameras, mm -hmm. you know, with the, uh, for, for homemade, you know. Absolutely. And... Uh, uh, they were. I made lots of. I took pictures. I made films. I. It's, I had a, like a, black. A, 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 it was a dark room in my mm -hmm. in my bathroom. I had like the windows covered and stuff. <laughs> That's and, awesome. And uh, it was all really bad stuff. Mm -hmm. But it, but like, <laughs> there's not much there that you uh, could be really proud of. But. But I would. It's just like that's that's how I kind of moved from like childhood play to experimenting with all these different kinds of creative forms. Absolutely. So. Okay, so you've been teaching at JCC for a long time. I know you said you taught at uh, KC, KCC. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think are some things that JCC does well as a college? Well, it, it does a lot well. Um, mm -hmm. It's a... The resources here are incredible, and, and people have so much at their fingertips. I don't think they know that necessarily. Mm -hmm. There's so many things you can do here, um, and uh, you know, it, it, it's so different from the university where I went, where you had very little, you had very little in the way of support staff, you had very little in the way of, like things like, you know how we have all the resource centers mm -hmm. in the library? I mean, there was nothing like that at my college. I mean. I think in my English department we had a writing center that was like one desk <laughs> where some some TA would like sit for a few hours a day. We had to sign a sheet or something. We'd sit Not for a few hours. Flickering light bulb <laughs> above them or something. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah. And I mean, even just the writing center here was always, before it was even down there, the writing center was a, was a wonderful facility that was sort of more tied into the English department directly. And... Um, and I think that's true of math and all this. So just it, a lot of the support um, um, elements of the school. But there's also, you know, all this, uh, uh, the organizations are able to do a lot of different kinds of things, put on shows, put together, you know, fundraisers and events. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, uh, I think that, the, the, you know, the thing where there's a bit of a gap sometimes is that it is a commuter campus. Very few people are, are like here all the time the way they would be at a university or something. Absolutely. And so there's so many more resources than people even ever realize. kind of realize are here or, or are around enough to, to take make use of. I'm amazed at the Carlson Center where they have all these concerts and performers that are like, you know, like world-class people coming mm -hmm. all the time and it's five bucks a student yeah I mean, absolutely that's, that's an amazing thing yeah we didn't have anything like that mm -hmm. when I was in school. Yeah. yeah i was an online student for my first first year basically and only this semester i started actually coming to class out coming on campus to go to class and stuff like that now i'm in like six or seven 
at seven different clubs and I'm going on a bunch, get to go on a bunch of free trips and I get and I notice that yeah that we really do have tons of resources for anybody and everybody if you really are just looking for, look looking for them. And I would add, I would add this, mm -hmm. that I, first of all, you know, we don't have the same mentality at the university, which is sort of sink or swim, publish or perish, those sorts of things. Um, teachers here tend to really want to teach. Mm -hmm. um, the administrative staff really wants to support teachers and students in what they need to do. Absolutely. So it's just a really, it's, it's a good environment that's very student-centered, I think. I, I would agree with that completely. I do, yeah. I do feel like every teacher I've met or professor has been very passionate about it. You'll see them actually volunteering to help out clubs and wanting to put in work. Every teacher I've talked about having on, on my podcast so far has been super about it. So mm -hmm. I would agree with that completely. Um, so on the flip side of the question, do you think there are any things that JCC might be able to improve on? Oh yeah, um, I I think I think there's a lot of divisions between some of the people I'm, I was listing just now are folks that I think um, uh, I would love to see finding ways to work together more. And and there's people that work really hard on on this on campus. I'm not saying there's not an effort, but I think. First off, teachers' divisions and programs tend to be kind of what we call siloed. You know, mm -hmm. they're kind of in their own world. And there's not as much talking to each other across those lines. It happens around, I mean, that's why I got involved with honors, is that, um, that honors allows you to do that a little Absolutely. And, you'll have um, students from every different type of major in there. Yeah, and the teachers are talking, too. And so you get kind of more of a mix. Um, and I, I think there's a lot, there's, unfortunately, there's, I, coming from adjunct world, I was an adjunct for five years at both of those schools, and I remember as an adjunct not knowing any of the full-timers. Mm -hmm. I think I knew one, and where I did know them was working with them in, like, the writing center, and, because um, I worked in the writing center that whole time, and then when I became full-time, it's like suddenly you don't see the adjuncts anymore. And, and so that, those kinds of divisions, mm -hmm. because we're all like the front line with the students, and that's everybody, the, all the administration. I don't mean top administrators, that's kind of different, but all the people you know, that are like running this collab or you know, all the people that are working with students in a direct face-to-face -face sort of way throughout the campus, we all need to be like, Treated, treated equally well, and treating each other equally well, and working together. And I think, I think there's, I think there's gaps sometimes. Room, room for growth there. Absolutely. Yeah. But I, I don't think it's on the part of people trying individually. I think everybody's trying their best. Mm -hmm. There's just, just organizations like this have institutional issues mm -hmm. that are really hard to solve. You know? Absolutely. And there's yeah. no one solid answer that'll fix everything for anybody. Right. So I can understand that completely. Right. Okay, so this is a bit more of a lighthearted question, but think back to when you were in K through twelve. Were you ever given a detention? Were you ever in trouble in school? And if so, what what were what kind of problem child were you? Were you a class clown? Were you just tardy a lot? Anything like that? I was very introverted, and mm -hmm. um, um, although I may have had some some moments where I, because I, I was I was the sort of introvert that mm -hmm. like also never shut up at home. So mm -hmm. sometimes around friends, I could talk too much and that sort of thing. But, uh, oh, I got in trouble for skipping school without permission. I got called into the vice president's office. <laughs> um, I, uh, 
I really didn't like school. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I think I, I, uh, I, I didn't like the fact that I had to be somewhere all those hours of the day, and that it felt, it, you feel, and this, I think about this with students here, it's a different environment, hopefully positive in this way, but I, I, I think students know they're being housed Mm -hmm. All day, and they know that, like, I mean, it's it's a terrible situation where, like, you know, like, um, not being sort of free to move about, but of course the teachers can't let them because they're, like, they're looking after them. Absolutely. So it's a very difficult situation, and I, I oh gosh, I, I, that's the biggie that comes to mind is the when I got, when I got called in front of the vice principal, but, you know, I... I was, you know, I did some sort of honorary things, some pranks on teachers and things, just because I was trying mainly to look good in front of my peers, right? Absolutely. I, get, I, can, <laughs> I can relate. I can and relate. some of those things I don't like to remember that I did, you know? It's like I was not always a good kid. Yeah. Absolutely. But no smoking in the boys' room, nothing like that? <laughs> I don't believe I was smoking in the boys' room, no. But, <laughs> But things were a little different back then. You, you, there were like places where people went and hung out across the street. Absolutely. And, you know, um, when I was in junior high, mm -hmm. which is like seven, eight, nine, there was a smoker's corner. <laughs> I didn't hang out over there. There's a smoker's corner, like catty corner, from, and everybody knew it was there. It was just, but this is the 70s. It was a different era. Absolutely. It's kind of dazed and confused. Mm -hmm. so. so you've worked for JCC for a long time. I believe you said your 30th anniversary is coming up? No, no, it's more like 35. I started in 88. Okay, okay. So it would be, it's, it's 30th of full time. Okay. Yeah. So how have you seen JCC grow and grow over the years? I'm, I'm sure there's been some growing pains over the years. I'm sure it's obviously gotten new buildings and stuff like that. How have you seen JCC grow and like evolve over the years? It's always been, it's always been really big in terms of mm -hmm. student population. Um, always sort of comparable to like the school I came from, which was a university. But, you know, everyone's not on campus at the same time. And, um, but the, the, the campus looks very different. I mean, when I first came, it was basically this kind of quad out here. There were these buildings that sort of circled, the, you know, that main courtyard, the one with the mound? Mm -hmm was kind of the center of campus. I thought know. that's the highest point in Kansas, Mount Sunflower. <laughs> the mountain used to be there. And, and this area was here too, between the library and, mm -hmm. and uh, um, LCB and all that. That was also an area where, you know, kids were playing hacky sack and whatever, always. But that was most of it. And we had, um, it felt smaller. Um, I taught all over, we used to teach all over campus more than we do now. I used to teach in ATB and ITC a lot. Mm -hmm. I don't know if ATB, is that even there now? It's like, I think it's, I'm not sure. IT, <laughs> ITC, well ATB's been, I know they were completely remodeling it, if it's still there. Um, but, uh, this, I shouldn't be admitting, I don't know if the building's still on <laughs> campus. Um, but it's, it feels like we've grown um, apart physically in some ways just because we do. We have. We've gotten larger in terms of the structure. So we have like the Rainier Center out there on the east side, mm -hmm. and the Nerman Museum, and and I, I remember before the Carlson Center had this great front to it and all that. I think I remember before the Carlson Center, 
And so we have all these kind of appendages that jut out in different directions, and it's just sprawls now. It used Absolutely. to be kind of compact. I need um, a, it's a good thing for me. I need my steps every day. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I need yeah. the excuse. Um, but, you know, in, in many ways it feels very similar. It was, it was different. When I first started, it was the old guard. It was like the people that created the school were still the teachers. Wow. So Because they had started in like... 1969 or something? I believe so. And so this was just 20 years in. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of them were still here. And and, and they went back that whole time. And, and uh, I was definitely, you know, I was one of the young guys that was, didn't, you know, uh, it, it seemed like I came in after the whole history of the college was practically in the past. But of course now... Not so far back. No, now I go almost back to I go back more farther than almost most people. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so what do you think sets JCC apart from other schools? What makes it unique, and what makes it special to you? Well, we're very lucky. Mm -hmm. We have um, we have really good um, technology. We have mm -hmm. great support. We have great classrooms. We have. I mean, we have resources that just and, and we do a lot, a lot in community terms and I think in we've moved in positive directions there with like um, you know we, we food bank here mm -hmm. and we and we we offer things to the outside community um, um, but just for the students themselves it's like it's I think we sometimes don't realize how good we have it here you know mm -hmm. like that just uh, uh, we can pretty much do whatever we want to on this campus if we just understand the resources we have. Absolutely, absolutely. I just—it was just in the library. And they were talking about they had six six hundred million publications in the library. That, <laughs> that is so. I mean, I remember a time when it was tens of thousands, and it mm -hmm. was still, that was very impressive. Mm -hmm. But the fact that we have that much that you can't obtain otherwise without you know—they're all subscriptions, paywalls, things mm -hmm. like that. Um, we just we just have so many resources that we don't movies. We have that canopy channel. I mean, we've got all kinds of things that that um, 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 I think one thing I, I want I would really love students to realize always is how much a place like this is yours to to make the most of. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really of. like you know if you want to change things, the students are the ones who can do it. Absolutely. So, yeah. Okay. So looking back through your career, do you have any random or fun memories that just kind of pop out to you? Hmm. Well, I, I, I uh, the one that always comes to mind, and I kind of mentioned it earlier, was back when I was working in diversity and, and I was working with, I was working a lot with the international students, like the international, the, um, International Club, mm -hmm. and all the, all the students that were really involved in student activities, and we began, I mean, there was a cause that a lot of the students were interested in at the time, the Invisible Children um, was the I remember that, Calcone 2012, I think it was? Yeah, I mean, this was, yeah, we probably started this even earlier than that, it was mm -hmm. like 2010 or something, but, but the thing about it... Um, because I, in some ways, I almost wish the vision of it had grown a little bit bigger than that one thing, in a way. But, but the cool thing about it was, everybody on campus came together and sort of 
took over the little theater and they did like these 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 multicultural nights where it was like part uh, mu musicians that play around today town today played some of their first shows there. Um, um, we had fashion show. We had uh, dan dancers. We had all kinds of things. It's like everybody it was like you know like a talent show just put on by the students to raise money. And I remember when it was coming together, because the real celebration really was the multicultural nature of the campus, and it felt like a really special moment. You know, and, and we sort of packed the little theater, and there's great films of it and stuff. And I, I remember thinking at that time, I'm, I, I need to be enjoying this because I, this won't this won't happen exactly the same way again. Never there were again. several more years of it, mm -hmm. and I sort of other people were in charge and all that, and I'm sure they had wonderful times. But that that first year was just like sort of um, mm -hmm. uh, it was a real honor. Just to be a part Absolutely. of it, you know. And, I'm uh, sure that might be one of the hard things about working in a community college is that the students change so quickly that something can be amazing one year and then this guard might not even switch over just because some students are out. That it's hard to transition things like that. I know a lot of clubs kind of struggle with that. Groups change, and yeah, I was I was there around the same time Luna was beginning, which is a fantastic organization on this mm -hmm. campus, but um, it had a certain character right at first. Mm -hmm. um, that was, you know, that kind of aggressive around some different issues, the mm -hmm. Dream Act, and and um, um, we we did these fundraisers for a, a young man who was undocumented who didn't have a heart or he needed a heart. He had a heart. But mm -hmm. He needed a heart, and the passion and the, the experiences we had back then were. We ended up running into some conflict with the administration, and, and things mm -hmm. changed a lot after that. And, you know, again, it was just like, the group continues, the group's doing wonderful things, they, they're facing new kinds of challenges today. Um, but, um, and in some ways I think it's rebuilt from, like, that place where we started. Mm -hmm. But, um, but right at, you know, it's kind of like you saw uh, the students throw a Hail Mary and and then, um, you know, get kind of get kind of shot down at that time, and, and it took a while to rebuild, you know. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so now I'd like to transition a bit to your career in music journalism, if that's okay. Mm -hmm, sure. So how many years of experience would you have in there? I know um, some of your experiences, you've worked for The Pitch, uh, you've worked for The New Times, you returned to The Pitch, you've... Uh, done done some work uh, on issue oriented rap and rock confidential. Um, I know you've even had some radio experience, and you've even written a couple books. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, that was that was the. Oh, I mentioned Dave Marsh before. Mm -hmm. um, he had he had quit. He left Rolling Stone, and he he, he still he start, He was actually starting his book writing career. He's he wrote like thirty books or something. But uh, really good books, each one very distinct from the one that came before. And some of them had been a huge influence mm -hmm. on me in like just sort of my early education in music. Um, and they all were, they were all a big influence on me. But, but um, he had a, he, he focused all his energy when he went writing books on this publication, Rock and Rap Confidential, which uh, was, was meant to be 
uh, and, and was a newsletter that brought together musicians with their fans around mm -hmm. common ground, common issues, Absolutely. issues facing musicians in the industry, issues facing industry workers in the industry, you know, all those kinds of things. And um, um, so I, the first thing I did was start with some of my friends who were like also um, subscribers to that newsletter, which was a national thing. I started my own. Mm -hmm. With them, we started one called A Sign of the Times, and we did that from like 88 to 91. And in the process, we started picking up these jobs, working for different papers and things. And, and uh, oh, it was a pretty heady experience, because there were years there where I was pretty much getting to interview and talk to anyone I wanted to. And, mm -hmm. and, 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 there, and there was also a, a, a sense of, I mean, just I had a you know, great sense of my own personal power as a writer, and the, the, you know, I could if I wanted to do something, I just had to decide I wanted to do it, and I could go after it and figure out a way to do it. You know, absolutely. Like the podcast, like if you wanted to talk to somebody, you know, like it's it's uh, it's it's amazing to you you fall in love with something, you get excited about something, then you can actually play a role in promoting it or digging into it or. Absolutely. You know, having a conversation you feel like needs to be had, you know. Absolutely. I, I, it was definitely a big deal when I started my other podcast, how quickly I kind of just got into it and how quickly people just gave me the opportunity to interview them. It, it's a fantastic experience, especially starting to get recognition and pick up steam for stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I came, there were a lot of the old, you know, Kansas City was really a jazz city. Mm-hmm. Still is in many ways, but jazz, you know, we think of as, as from another era more. Um, and I was lucky enough to do some of the first stories on a, on a blues and jazz festival that we that started in the late 80s here in town. Big thing. And get to talk to all these, you know, like sort of legends. Mm -hmm. And I had to learn about them because I wasn't from here and I, I didn't know about a lot of that, like Jay McShann and a lot of the artists that were so important here. But you would see them around and I, I feel really lucky um, that I got to interview some of these guys, Claude Fiddler Williams, Speedy Huggins, they were these characters that came straight out of like, I mean, to me, a mythic history mm -hmm. in the city, you know, and they were still hanging around, still checking out bands, and they were, you'd see them places and you'd say, hey, I'd like to write something. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, how would you say the music industry has evolved? What do you think are some of the biggest changes that you've seen in the music industry, both locally, uh, regionally, and nationally, uh, throughout your time as a music journalist? Well, I saw a boom and bust I, in some mm -hmm. ways. I mean, the industry is still doing very well, even though they kind of cry poor. I was just, I was just looking at statistics <laughs> with my class in the last class, and um, saw that like music, the music industry revenue for concerts, for instance. Mm -hmm. in 1990, which is about the time I started writing, was about $1 billion, the, the, the total revenue. Today it's about $8.8 billion, billion or something. Yeah. So it's, you know, even though most people can't afford to go to a show, and it's it's like a very different world, and, and, and it's, um, you know, there's a lot of money being made by that industry still. You know? Absolutely. So that's, that's pretty, but the whole, the whole th cultural phenomenon that, you know, even made me want to write about music, mm -hmm. where it felt like fans and musicians were kind of co-conspirators in sort of a cultural shift. Mm -hmm. um, that 
you know, there's lots of ways that just that just changed. We sort of lost the presses the way they used to work. Absolutely. And the, the identification with presses. Um, in the early 90s, you that came later, but in the early 90s, one of the first things that happened was like this deep fragmentation of um, the market. So um, I, I remember there's a point, and someone might argue with me that there was a station that would still be called this or whatever, there's a point where sort of top 40 in Kansas City disappeared, and this reflected what was going on all over the country, and was replaced by sort of more like, you know, micro-formatted stations. Mm -hmm. like young country, um, you know, we went, we went from, well, the, the grunge bands kind of destroyed the hair bands. Um, and I remember a moment where, like, the grunge took over and metal went to AM, and... and um, and just everything changed, and everything became much more specifically based around genre. Absolutely. You know, there wasn't like kind of a mix of genres anywhere. Mm -hmm. And 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 that division, there's a beautiful, there's a, a rock critic named Lester Bangs who wrote about when Elvis died, he said, he, he sort of saw this coming. He said, you know, um, I'm not writing this to say goodbye to Elvis but because Elvis was one thing that we all once agreed upon, I'm writing this to say goodbye to you. And he's talking about the audience for mm -hmm. his writing. Because it was just a different world where people weren't going to agree on things anymore. And they weren't going to be feel like kind of part of the same team. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, it, you know, of course it was always messy and mm -hmm. everybody had their favorite bands and hated mm -hmm. other bands and all that. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. but there was... There was a sense of a counterculture that sort Absolutely. of has become many countercultures. Mm -hmm. And I'm not putting it down or anything. It's just much harder to understand what it is now. Mm -hmm. It's You know what I mean? Absolutely. Uh, um, I'm mostly an electronic dance music yeah. uh, podcast. Well, my original one is. And that's one of the things I love most about the community is that it has this weird way of bringing everybody together from all these different crowds, from doctors and lawyers to teenagers to everybody in between those demographics. And that's what I kind of love, that it will bring these groups of people that have nothing in common except for the love of the music. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And I, I, think, it, I think it's taking all sorts of new forms, and, and mm -hmm. that's great. You know, it's... Uh, it's it's there's less of a sense of one big tent in a sense that there's like a whole bunch of different tents mm -hmm. and you know we can find ways to communicate with each mm -hmm. other and around EDM it may be a bigger tent than others uh, it can be kind of divisive sometimes <laughs> there is that big tent sometimes there is that elitist gatekeeping with a bunch of little tents there's like so many different subgenres from space space to deep space space and everything weird things like that and there definitely will be gatekeepers and sometimes it can get a little toxic well you know it was mm -hmm. it was it was never ideal mm -hmm. and there's never like a great era you know mm -hmm. no matter what people from the 60s may say or the or the 70s or the 80s or whatever but there was always there was a sense of a direction mm -hmm. maybe that you're going and now i think like it's like a firework. It's like things have just gone off mm -hmm. in so many different directions that Absolutely. it's very hard to see that anymore. Mm -hmm. you know? get, the, get the whole picture. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what do you think are some of the biggest challenges and some of the biggest rewards of being a musical journalist? Ah, well, it challenges you don't get paid. Um, <laughs> uh, they, it, it, especially now. It's just like, Hit you know, me in the soul with that yeah, one. Yeah. Um, 
Um, although, uh, you know, some people do. You ha mm -hmm. You'd have to really go for one of those rare jobs, and, and you never know. I mean, the last working music journalist in Kansas City that was locally focused at all was Tim, that I can think of was Tim Finn at the um, mm -hmm. Star. And um, he still writes about music. He still writes lyrics for Ink Magazine. But, mm -hmm. but just the fact that we don't have, like, in the paper uh, someone who covers that locally anymore, you know, it's, that's a very different world. Um, the great thing about it, if you love music, you have an excuse to go, you know, mm -hmm. pursue your passions and to, uh, and to and sort of engage with the culture itself, like to, to you know, um, I, I, there's always kind of, I never really liked the term rock critic much because, um, it sounds like you're just saying, well, this is good, this is bad, buy this, don't buy that. But what was, but, but I think if you don't understand it that way, the idea was I, you are taking part in a conversation that, like, you think needs to happen, you mm -hmm. know, and, and so that, that was great. Um, and and I, I got to talk to so many people, William S. Burroughs, Laurie Anderson, all these people mm -hmm. that I... Um, really admired and um, never knew if I was, or, or, or was just fascinated by them, um, and never knew I would get to talk to the members of Public Enemy, various groups over the years. And um, I don't know where to start that list, Jeff Tweedy. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I uh, uh, that's fun, Janelle Monet. <laughs> um, that's fun, but, uh, and, and it's exciting. Um, See, so, so if the if it's your passion and you have an excuse to walk through those doors, that's great, you know, Absolutely. and to do something that might help. Um, there is another downside. The downside, when you said that, I, I started thinking that there is a downside in that. Um, I I just think there's a, there's sort of a limit sometimes to. Um, what you're what you're able to do that I mean you can you can always see so, so much potential in and and so so many ways you're falling short of what you would like to have done or hope to have done or whatever it's I had another thought in there but mm -hmm. I'm kind of losing it all so. good what advice would you give to an aspiring music journalist uh you know think about think about it in a different way than me because mm -hmm. like if I was starting now um, I think I would think about well where where is music journalism where does it gain traction mm -hmm. now I think it would be podcasts absolutely and you know maybe the, there might be YouTube shows whatever you know that but it, it wouldn't it's not it's not this long form writing that we used to do you know um, I mean I think there's a place for that Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's where you're going to kind of connect with the audience first and foremost now, you know? Absolutely. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. So, I ask this question a lot. What is your favorite thing about the Kansas City uh, music scene, and what do you think sets us apart from other cities, or perhaps regions? Um... Well, can't, I, I, don't, I don't know sometimes, I don't think there's one scene. Mm -hmm. There's a scene that's kind of a midtown, 
um, sort of a post-punk scene that's kind of like people not that much younger than me mm -hmm. who, who are still sort of like the underground rockers, that sort of thing. And then there's like out toward independence, there's always been, especially, there's always been, and it kind of tends to be more rural and, mm -hmm. and ur suburban, there tend to be like metal scenes. I can agree with that. And then there's like the rap and hip hop scenes, which are multiple, like in different mm -hmm. parts of town, different areas. Um, and, you know, that's something I think is a little bit, it's, it, it comes together here and there. But I know it was, I was sort of blown away when I went to Tulsa not too terribly long ago. And mm -hmm. I went to uh, an evening that was a fundraiser for, for an organization that was trying to raise awareness more about like what happened back in 1921 with the massacres. And uh, uh, it was fascinating to see like several hip, several rappers, a hip hop DJ, opening for some metal bands and then later there was going to be these kind of blues based hard rock bands and all these people seemed to know each other and hung out and it just felt like there was a kind of a cross genre thing going Absolutely. on there probably because it's a smaller place mm -hmm. a lot of times in smaller places you can do things that are harder to do yeah i can agree with that i've had i always heard that Kansas city is kind of a fishbowl you can go far but you're always going to try to end up seeing the same people and i i would agree with the cross in, genre in your genre yeah, almost. There's like a Roots thing. There's mm -hmm. like this whole Roots bunch. And they're great. Mm -hmm. But it's, yeah, it, it kind of, they tend to be kind of hemmed in a little by genre. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, what do you think is the role of music journalism in the community, and what is the power of music journalism? Well, the idea behind music journalism, as far as I'm concerned, is that you're, 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 you're acting as a voice... For the audience, in a way that, um, and and that doesn't mean you're trying to say what everybody thinks, but you're you're an audience member, mm -hmm. and you're speaking up about what it's like to listen to this and receive it as someone who's not making the music, and you're trying to talk to the other fans as well as the musicians about what's going on, mm -hmm. um, and. There's wonderful things about that, you know, like like one of them is very, one of them I take more comfort in than ever is how often um, getting to write about somebody is actually helpful to the artist. Mm -hmm. And just sometimes they'll, I mean, I have people tell me, well, I, I feel like some, you know, you heard me. You know, and I, I don't get that necessarily. You get, you get applause, you get this, but you don't necessarily get you know, because the great thing about music journalism is you can go deep in and really look at what they're really doing on a level that's very hard to do in casual conversation, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. And for me, I can't even think on, on the level I write. I can't think that level until I write. Mm -hmm. So it, it it's it gives me a chance to really respond from my sort of my soul about what what it is I'm hearing, and then communicate that out to the audience. And you know, and sometimes people tell me things that make me feel really good, like. I read that it's just not too long ago this local musician was talking about something I wrote back in 1999 and how that thing had really kind of kept him going at a certain point. I, I'm almost embarrassed to say that out loud, but it means the world to me, you know? Mm -hmm. So Absolutely. Um, 
I forgot. What, what, am I missing some part of the question? Uh, what just? Uh, what is the power of music journalism, and what is the role of it in the community? So I, I just think, yeah. I mean, whatever form it takes, it's a way for the musician audience to be in in a dialogue that's a mm -hmm. little deeper and richer than simply great show. Yeah, or, or bar arguments or whatever. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a, it's a place where you can have sort of a, mm -hmm. a more ongoing, thoughtful conversation. And, and I think it's helpful to everybody. It certainly always helped me as a fan think about why I felt the way I did about certain things. And, and it, it, it totally transformed my worldview. In my politics, everything was shaped by reading music journalism. Absolutely. And... Um, at the same, and I don't mean the two parties so much as, <laughs> as just you know real politics, and um, um, and I think musicians also get all kinds of you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, my a lot of my best friends who are musicians read a lot of criticism, and they're really mm -hmm. fascinated with it themselves because they're fans too. Mm -hmm. So they they love the stuff that's about the people they love, you know. Absolutely. Whatever. Okay, so my next question would be, what do you think some are some of the biggest challenges and rewards of working in print journalism? Obviously, you worked in it, journalism pre-internet so much, and now you've kind of seen it evolve into the internet. Can you maybe compare and contrast the two media formats? I think it's very different. I mean, I, I, my, my understanding is there's, there's studies that have been done about the difference in reading physical copy mm -hmm. and reading copy online and just the way we retain it, the way we process it is very Believe different. That. Um, um, I mean, I kind of know anything I write that's online is going to be skimmed more than it's going to be read. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And that was always true, but, mm -hmm. it, but, there, but there was a sense with, with paper, print, physical journalism that, that you were... You were you were likely to get read, at least by some, a little more closely. And the nuance was, you know, there. On the other hand, it's wonderful that you can reach more people. Um, mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's tough because you're working in a form that is arguably dying as it is. And then at the same time, recognizing the need for still that kind of level of conversation, but mm -hmm. how do you have it? You know, do you have it on podcast? Do you have it? I mean, one thing about, I like about print that I think, like, if somebody shows me a video of something, I look to see if there's a text that tells me what's in the video. Mm -hmm. Like a news story or something. Because I can look through the text for what I really want to see and retain it better than... It, than sitting down and knowing I have to watch a seven-minute segment or something. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And that would be great. I may want to do that. But I, I like, there's a, there's a way that print just has its own strengths. It's just, Absolutely. It's, uh, um, and I find it you know, more portable, more usable, mm -hmm. more, for a lot, of, a lot of things. You don't have to be at your computer. You don't have to be mm -hmm. looking at your phone. You don't have, you know... I like to detox from the screen. A bit, so <laughs> yeah, it's nice like to do a lot that. of screens. It's tough. Mm -hmm. now, and I feel like they make me anxious. Mm -hmm. Oh, honestly. yeah, I can agree with that completely. I definitely have a social media addiction, so I can agree with that completely. How would you compare... I kind of wonder how much mm -hmm. the anxiety today has to do with how much we're oh, doing these lot. devices. Yeah, yeah. I remember one time I lost my phone for a week, and I thought I was feeling vibrations in my pocket, and I used to have one of those smart watches, and I had to kind of get rid of that just because I would, like 
think I'm getting notifications. Oh, you got I, fan Yeah, fan I get those all the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. I get those I don't too. know. That's, I don't think that's good for you. I haven't even had a phone that does that for a long time and haven't kept it in that pocket, but it still does. Yeah. <laughs> so, how would you rate the feedback between the two? Obviously, in print publication, you're not getting that instant feedback where, which you can get across um, uh, social media and stuff like that. Obviously, you can get instant notifications through feedback on the internet. And I do feel like the internet might be a little bit more toxic than print. No, I feel like people aren't going to sit there and take the time to write to you or come talk to you. And with their complaints that might not even be real with print media, well, they will look for reasons to complain on the internet. Well, if you did get a letter in print in the print days, the pre the mm -hmm. pre digital days, right? The pre the pre internet days. Um, if you did get a letter, it was usually angry. <laughs> but. But um, dang, they took the <laughs> they took the time to write out a strong. Yeah, but they wrote a letter. Yeah, it was, it was but uh, but there was that thing of like you sent it off and then you just knew you weren't going to hear anything. If you did, it would be from your friends that read it mm -hmm. and whatever, and it would be kind of casual and social. Absolutely. Um, I do not like that part of me at all. That keeps checking to see if I've got likes. I get that. I, I can I, get that. I find that very unhealthy. Mm -hmm. Yes. Or or yeah. You know, okay. Why has no one responded? Or, <laughs> I have no readers yet. What what's like, what the hell? You know, like, I mean, I know it takes me sometimes days, weeks, months to get around to reading something I want to read. You know. But but you we're we're used to that immediate gratification. You know. It's like, it's, Absolutely. It's like, and it is, it's like addiction or something, compulsive mm -hmm. behavior. Mm -hmm. I definitely, whenever I drop a podcast, I'm looking, how many views do I got now? How many views do I got now? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like that thing where you, like, yeah, absolutely. Where you, like, do you ever send a text? Sometimes I send a text and I immediately regret sending a text because now I'm going to be worried about the response to the text. Yes. Whereas <laughs> yes. if I had just shut up, it would have been fine, you know? Like, you know, you know, like, you mm -hmm. don't want to be the... You don't want to be the last one in the conversation. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so we are running a little over on time, so I probably got only got time for a couple questions left. Okay. Um, what do you think is, what are you most proud of working, or what do you consider to be one of your most important pieces of work? Well, I think the Mary J. Blige book was really important. Um, um, speaking of things that you get very little feedback on, um, because I, one of the things I did, um, and I tend to be someone with a bit of a narrow focus in the sense that I know a lot about a few things and I, I don't know, I don't know a little about a whole bunch of things so much as I know a lot about a few things and I attended the bigger picture around it. And I was so fascinated, um, by what was happening with women in from the beginnings of hip hop almost, mm -hmm. and 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 the um, certainly in the mid '80s to late '80s, it's like Janet Jackson's Control comes out, and, and Madonna's in there. She's important, but like Jody Watley and Whitney Houston, all these things, all this music. I I felt like I caught mm -hmm. a wave and wrote about it all the time, um, of like what was happening with women in like uh, what we could say is R&B but R&B and hip-hop and then that kind of sort of forecast what was going to happen what happened with women in general in pop music afterwards I mean the biggest figures 
to this day tend to be women. There's mm -hmm. a lot of them, you know. And it, it was never, it's less people though. So there was this wave in the middle of 90s where there were just so many women who were so good, who were all over the place. And, um, and I used that Mary J. Blige book really to talk about that movement as much as, as to talk about her. But I focused on her as a way to do it. And, and, uh, and I, I felt like, well, that's the book where I wrote what I spent most of my, you know, most of that part of my life sort of covering. And, and I, you know, whatever flaws there are to it, I feel like I sort of captured, mm -hmm. I sort of captured something that I don't, feel like a lot of, there's a, Daniel Smith, who actually, um, I showed you a piece by her, mm -hmm. Daniel Smith um, was, uh, you know, uh, one of the few other people out there who was really sort of watching that wave the way I felt like I was. I felt very, a great kinship to her, even though I didn't know her. And uh, so that felt important. It feels really important to get this book of, this anthology of Dave's work out. Absolutely. Uh, because he's, his writing is as important to me as anybody's. And I really think in the history of music journalism, he's a, he's a unique and important character. Um, for Like everything I've been talking about in terms of just sort of the vitality and the social significance of the music, mm -hmm. I, I learned, I mean, I felt it, but he articulated it in a way that really made me think about it from a young age, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, before I started working with him, which, you know, just... That I like. That's a path choice I made like forty years ago, and I've been on it. So. Absolutely. Um, so, can you tell me a little bit about your research process and how does it maybe differ between doing an article, doing a publication, and writing a whole book? What does that kind of look like for you, and what is your process, quote unquote? With music, you immerse yourself in mm -hmm. in the music, and. And that's a tricky thing. If you're covering music all the time, I don't do it like that anymore. I'm, I'm not a deadline chaser. Um, I'm not really committed to any particular publication, and I just do things kind of when I want to. But, but um, you need to figure out ways to listen more like a normal person listens. Like, like, like just listen to it. Like I would, I'd make, I'd make a point of just listening to, to something I was going to write about for days, if not weeks, before I even thought about what I was going to write. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And if it wasn't holding up, or if I got bored with it, then I didn't want to do it. And um, and then, you know, and then you start, if you're going to interview somebody or something, you start reading everything that everybody else has written, mm -hmm. and poking around. I mean, when you write about music, you, you, you go down YouTube wormholes, you go to blogs, you go to podcasts, you go to videos, you go to you know, all the things out there that are about it. it. Today, I mean, before I would interview anybody, I would spend a lot of time with all of that. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And um, then when you write a book, um, and then after you interview them, then you've got all these new questions. I just mm -hmm. interviewed this this young musician. Um, I, I call her young. She's like 32. I just said her age. That's good. <laughs> um, anyway, she, she, uh, she has like three or four songs on this album that use elements of the poem Evangeline and I interviewed her about it and, and before I could write that article I had to it's like an it's like a you know like a novel length poem. I had to go read the poem. Mm -hmm. Just to be sure I was you know, I had a sense of what it was, but just to be sure that I, if there's anything else I need to say about that. 
because she really had internalized it. It was a big part of what she did with the record. Um, so, you know, there's the before interview research, there's the after interview research. There's as you start writing and realize you don't know things research, you know. And uh, with books, it's just, I, it, for me, it's panic. <laughs> a lot of like thinking there's no way I'll be able to do this thing and just immersing myself in it for a long time and then kind of like doing one story at a time right you think one chapter at a time mm -hmm. just I'm going to do this I'm going to do this research mm -hmm. paper <laughs> chapter one then I'm going to do this one but you know you're also trying to make it lively and fun you don't want it to read like a research paper you want it to read like a story right? absolutely so, um um, so, I mean, and it goes all over the place. I think I think I use every tactic imaginable. Mm -hmm. I've got, I've got, I, I draw and I color and I, I mean, I do all kinds of things to sort of get my mind loose from just writing, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then I come back to it, you know. So... How do you think the role of music journalism has changed over the years? I just, I just think it's in the process of like being redefined. I, I, I <laughs> think there's a lot more serious academic. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was a time when I started, academics essentially made fun of all the ones I knew, made fun of me for <laughs> being interested in it, and. Um, now there are a lot of, um, you know, a good friend of mine was a, uh, um, worked with a woman named Nellie McKay up at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and, and um, Craig Warner's his name, and, and, and they had an Afro-American studies class that was like the music class, I mean, kind of a premier music class in the country, you know, it was mm -hmm. just a, and, um, um, but out of that came a lot of different young people and, um, and of, you know, uh, a lot of different people from different kinds of backgrounds that, that gravitated toward uh, academic research around music, right? So academia became a place where a lot of those folks went. Mm -hmm. And then the mainstream journalism, I think, has gotten a bit, a lot of it seems kind of, um, well, one thing that I thought was really, really bothered me was the syndicated papers, the ones that kind of things I wrote for, like the, the, the Village Voice Syndicate, they would very often start all new writers as music critics. Mm -hmm. So people like me, who had a passion for music criticism and felt like I knew quite a bit about music and had a lot to say, suddenly there's, the, it's like everybody, whether they like music or not, is basically walking in that door and, oh, well, you can write some reviews first. And um, that's fine, but it also just meant, it just showed how it was not taken very seriously. Okay. And, and the writing tended, the writing, the downside for me with the, with the whole thing of the multiverses, of everybody has their own favorite sub-sub-genre, and all those things, is that People started, they did this back when I started too, and that's kind of how you decide which people you wanted to read and which ones you didn't. But they tended to talk to such an in-group mm -hmm. that nobody else could even understand, understand what they were saying. About, like, yeah, making yeah. all these references to obscure bands. That, like, <laughs> they, it's almost like they're proud that, that, that no one's going to know what they're talking yeah. about. 
and um, and it, it cuts people off. Whereas the folks that I sort of grew up gravitating to would always make me feel like, well, you don't know this thing I'm saying, maybe, but you can hang on there and you'll get it because I'm going to explain the context. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. was, there was always an open door. I mean, that was one of the great things Dave taught me was like, you should always write to the smartest fan you can, write to the smartest fan you can imagine, but um, don't leave the others out. Absolutely. You know, and that's that, that feels like that art is being lost a little bit, mm -hmm. um, particularly in... And then I think there's just, it's just generally, there's just not a lot of right. So everything becomes capsuled, it becomes mm -hmm. very short, and it's like, is it good or bad? Does it get an A? Does it get a D? Does it, you know, I understand they're not doing that anymore in Rolling Stone, and I, I, but, but I, I don't think that, so I, it may, there may be a positive change in Rolling Stone, I don't know. I, I, I'd be pretty out of touch with them at this point. <laughs> okay, so this will be my final question. Okay. Um, what would you want to have considered to be your legacy or what would you want to be remembered for? Um, well, I, I just, I, I saw all of this as intersected. I, mm -hmm. I, I think um, people expressing themselves through music mm -hmm. or through writing or whatever are trying to, to uh, change the world for the better and some have have had some very good ideas about that some have really understood what the missing pieces were in the general sort of social and political atmosphere we're in and I, I would like to think that I was somebody who who helped inspire others to sort of pursue that passion and try to change things and also um, um, Maybe once in a while, I, I I did some good there, you know. Absolutely, that's so. that's an admirable goal. I think everybody wants to put back positivity and goodness in the world. Yeah. And since I'm a father and a grandfather, I you know, I I would hope that you know the, there's something in what I did that you know um, may enrich their lives as well. You know? Absolutely. So, you know. Absolutely. All right, well, I would like to thank you for your time. Yeah, it's been you. absolute. It yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. And I, hopefully either I'll have you on again or I'll see, see you soon. Okay, <laughs> thanks a lot. Yep, everybody who's listening, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. And you guys have a wonderful evening. Have a wonderful weekend.